right, welcome back. Uh, it's a real pleasure to introduce my friend uh, Peter Hallward, who is Professor of Modern European Philosophy at the Center for Research in Modern European Philosophy at Middlesex University in London. Uh, no doubt many of you are familiar with uh, several of Peter's publications over the past decade. Uh, he wrote one of the first sort of synthetic accounts of Alain Badiou's philosophy to appear in English, uh, Badiou is Subject to Truth. He also edited a volume, Think Again, Alain Badiou and the Future of Philosophy, which uh, included many surprisingly critical essays for the early reception of the thinker. He is uh, also known for his work on Gilles Deleuze, uh, his book, Out of This World, Deleuze and the Philosophy of, the, of Creation, which had the which in addition to developing several very pertinent critiques of Deleuze's philosophy at the level of ontology, bringing out some inconsistencies, also made uh, a decisive intervention and a critique against certain efforts to mobilize Deleuze's thought for political ends and sort of threw into question some of the political efficaciousness of uh, Deleuze's thought. Uh, more recently, uh, Peter has published a book, uh, Damning the Flood, Haiti, Aristide, and the Politics of Containment, which was an assessment of uh, political sequences in uh, Haiti over the past several decades. Uh, and this concern with actual political sequences and political engagement has been an abiding concern of uh, Peter's work for a long time, going back to his first book, Absolutely Postcolonial, Riding Between the Singular and the Specific, uh, where Peter really took to task some of the cultural politics regnant in postcolonial studies in favor of more sort of direct articulations of political sequences and engagement against abstractions that absolve responsibility uh, and absolve political action in the here and now. More recently, Peter's been working on uh, questions of will as a political concept and as a philosophical concept, and I imagine we'll hear about this project and elements of it today. So uh, please join me in welcoming Peter Hallward, who's going to deliver a talk titled Dialectical Voluntarism. Thank you very much, um, Knox. I, I think Alberto Toscano and Nina Power were here pretty recently, right, a few weeks ago. And um, about a year ago, I met Alberto for dinner in London near the British Library, and, um, and I showed up wearing, as I often do, the Mama T-shirt that Tom saw that you gave me about, what, four years ago? And uh, Alberto did too. <laughs> so we sort of sat there like two frat boys wearing this Mama T-shirt, and we were very embarrassed about it. Uh, but it's to give you an indication of the, you know, the influence and, and reputation that your organization has in some pretty far-flung places. It's really a pleasure to be back. And uh, thank you very much for this invitation and for organizing this conference, particularly to, to um, Petar and Tomislav and, and Nathan, who I know has done a lot of the basic legwork in bringing this together. Um, and I'm going to use the occasion to, to do something pretty self-indulgent, which is to present uh, an outline of the stuff that I've been working on for a little while, and in particular the stuff that I'd like to work on, sort of a wish list of topics that I would like to explore a bit more and I've only just started to do, or in some cases really haven't started to do. So um, that has a slightly evasive, I suppose, status of a kind of work in progress or more like a work in anticipation. Um, and the simplest way to, to introduce is to say that by, di by dialectical voluntarism I mean a way of an approaching the question of determination in such a way as to privilege the, the work or the willing of self-determination. This is a, a pretty conventional way of going about it, but in English, uh, there's a, uh, the word determination has usefully has three general main meanings. The, the first and the oldest 
coming out of the late medieval usage, if you trust the Oxford English Dictionary, the quasi-legal one, which means bringing a dispute to a conclusion or resolving a disagreement. So ending a kind of terminus of a disagreement and, and laying the foundation for a new departure. Um, it then expands uh, in the 15th century to mean something like, quote, the action of coming to a decision, so the process of resolving something, and by extension, a fixed intention or resolution. So this becomes then that dominant sense of determination in, in the, I suppose, is the subjective sense. Determination as the resolve to carry through and, and, um, and decide something or, or uh, pursue a particular course of action. And it's only later, about a century later, that it expands to mean... Uh, it's a derivative sense of something that's established. Quote, a fact, this is the OED again, a fact established, a conclusion or solution reached, and by further extension, the action of definitively locating, identifying, or establishing the meaning of something. And that, that sense of determination in, in the objective sense, the sense uh, that you have in German as Bestimmung, for example, something that is more or less objectively specified in its location. And by dialectical voluntarism, I mean basically an account of determination which which tries to privilege, in the first instance, the, the process, the willing, the action of self-determination, or that concrete meaning. Um, or in the terms that... And I, I, I gave a kind of a, a truncated version of a, of a, a first attempt to at publish some of the stuff in, in this uh, little handout. So if you've got it, I'm not going to refer to it now, but uh, I, in, in that short text there, I kind of give an initial outline of some of the points that are involved in this. Um, but to summarize it quickly... It means then an account in which um, what is primary is precisely the, the willing that is involved in, in something like self-determination, not in abstraction of the specific concrete situation, material conditions and so on, uh, that establish a particular situation, but, but nevertheless, in the way that we say that, for example, where there's a will, there's a way, that cliche in English, which I'm quite happy to embrace, uh, in saying that, it, what we're saying on the one hand is that it's the, the willing that indeed establishes the way. There is no way before the will, if you like. Or if you expect to always find a way before you create it through the willing, you will wait for a long time, I think. But it also means, and just as importantly, that you don't invent the terrain that you traverse. The terrain is there. It's very heavily compromised by history, by all kinds of obstacles and constraints. But they become intelligible as obstacles to the way that you are trying to build. So there's a kind of basic Sartrean line or Marxist line, I think, that these things appear as obstacles in the light of a project to try and change them or climb past them or transform them. Um, so I'm going to talk mainly about this, what is at stake in this voluntarism, particularly in its political uh, connotation. Uh, but I'm not going to use then, develop much of the word dialectical. I mean it in a very general way, uh, in the way that, for example, Hegel uh, deploys it when he talks about the dialectical experience of consciousness in the phenomenology of spirit, where, you know, if consciousness is a relation between a knowing and something known, or a subject and an object, something like that, the knowing process encounters at every stage of its development an obstacle, uh, or an impasse, or an inadequacy, or something that leads to an incoherence of its own account of what it's doing, and it then tries to get past that. And in doing so, it continues to create its own way precisely um, through the process of its own development. Um, in, in all kinds of different contexts, I think you can find versions of this uh, where, again, what I would want to emphasize is the primacy of the, of the subjective or the knowing instance over what is, for example, known or um, uh, over the objective aspect. You find a, a similar emphasis, I think, in Paolo Freire, who's someone I'd like to come back to a bit later, in what he calls the work of conscientization, which he defines, uh, quote, as the process in which people 
not as recipients, or later, as you'll say, in other contexts, as objects, but as knowing subjects, achieve a deepening awareness both of the sociocultural reality which shapes their lives, so the terrain, if you like, that they traverse, and their capacity to transform that reality, end quote, always with an emphasis on the capacity to transform it. It's that that is illuminating, in fact, of the terrain uh, or the uh, sociocultural reality that we live in. So this is the general project, uh, and this is what interests me. It's not, it's far from a radically innovative or very new project. It's in fact a very old, pretty conventional project. Um, and, and you find, uh, this, I suppose, the mainstream tradition coming out of the Enlightenment, particularly um, with Rousseau and his Jacobin followers, uh, later the voluntarist philosophies of people like Kant and Fichte and Hegel. I would include Marx, although we can come back to that. And at least some of Marx's readers in the 20th century, particularly Lukács, the early Lukács, and Gramsci, I think you can find other resources, too, in people like um, South, certainly, to some extent, the early Merleau-Ponty, um, and, and a whole range of other people, in fact. I would also want to include, this would be going back to work on post-colonial studies, thinkers in the anti-colonial militant tradition, particularly Fanon, also Paulo Freire, as I said, liberation theology, pedagogy, uh, and so on. And the basic idea, again, is, is far from marginal, even if it's become somewhat marginal. You find in documents ranging from the Declaration of the Rights of Man and the Citizen of the French Revolution through to the Universal Declaration of Human Rights in 1948 to the Freedom Charter uh, that the ANC adopted in South Africa, uh, any number of variations on the idea that it's the will of the people that is the basis of government and of legitimacy in a political community. Uh, to take the Freedom Charter, which has one of the most interesting uh, versions of this phrase, and which was the Freedom Charter of 1955, which for a long time was one of the most well-read, you know, familiar documents in the world, I think, certainly in uh, all kinds of uh, colonial situations, and has become now, in the way they say Martin Luther King's speeches and a few other things, has become part of the museum of political life, but not often referred to as an active program, which I think is a great uh, mistake. Uh, it begins with the assertion, Freedom Charter, it's very short, you can find it online anywhere you look, uh, that, quote, South Africa belongs to all who live in it, black and white, and no government can justly claim authority unless it is based on the will of all the people. Uh, that's its first statement. And then it goes on to say that a democratic state um, based on the will of all the people is its first objective and has as its first specific demand that, quote, the people shall govern. And this principle of the people shall govern and they shall do so inclusively and based on what their voluntary self-determination, based on their will, uh, which becomes the basis, I think, for the entire emancipatory sequence in South Africa that begins uh, in the 1950s, is silenced pretty definitively for about uh, um, at least 15 or so years, revives again in the mid-1970s and then goes on with fits and starts uh, um, for the next little while before accelerating dramatically in the mid-1980s, and I'll, I'll come back to that moment a little bit later if we have time. So this is my question. Is how, can we, how can we think political sequences or other sequences in, in which something like self-determination could be ascribed some kind of primacy based on the idea of a will of the people or will of all the people? What does this idea mean? How can we rethink re its history, its, its genealogy, its potential, uh, particularly in situations today where it might seem like it has very little, where it seems like it's an anachronistic notion that it's, that's, uh, time has come and gone, it's heavily compromised by the legacy of fascism, by the development of uh, recent forms of capitalism that would seem at the furthest removed from any capacity of voluntary interference and so on. 
Uh, and I'm mindful of that. It also, in the immediate context of this conference, it smacks of the worst form of idealism. Um, surely this is reminiscent of a kind of Fichtean emphasis on the primacy of the positing of a self, which then, only in a secondary moment, posits its non-self or other than self or nature. So I'll, I'll just start by um, uh, some off-the-cuff thoughts about this materialism and idealism distinction, which these are some hesitant, slightly reckless formulations um, for a couple of minutes. And to start first by saying that for me, this is a, it is a secondary notion in relation to the question that, um, that Martin ended on, which is the primacy of practice. I, and and uh, Graham yes, yesterday usefully said that you know, there are some distinctions that are important or urgent, uh, and the question of the distinction between idealism and materialism seems to me has a sort of derivative importance. It can be very important in circumstances in which it's the primacy of practice that is at stake. And in such a context, for example, in the context in which Marx launches his critique of Hegel's idealism in 1843-44, this is acutely important, and it, is, and, and it has the urgency of, of, uh, uh, um, of that context in which what is primary is precisely the work to ch- basically to change the world. We'll come back to that briefly. But in other words, what the primary question, the, primacy, the question of primacy is the question of practice, or the question of what is to be done, rather than, I think, that would be the kind of key Leninist question, rather than the question of the mind independence of matter or objective matter, which in fact, as it happens, is a perfectly idealist notion, I think. Um, so for me, the fact that Kant is an idealist philosopher, which of course he most emphatically is, does not compromise the fact of his, the importance of his contribution, again, with all the limitations of an idealist philosophy, of insisting on the primacy of practical reason and and putting the question of the primacy of practice on the agenda in ways that would be immensely fertile uh, for the next generation or two, including the generation that gives rise to Marx. And I think to to simply abandon that legacy because it's idealist or because it can't be easily recuperated into a kind of immediate tactical uh, practice of uh, a political organization would be a reckless loss. Uh, And I would follow someone like Lucien Goldman then in both acknowledgement of the limitations of this conception of practice, but also its absolute importance in the history of philosophy. Um, so for me, the, 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 the fundamental issue is a question of practice, primacy of practice, uh, where above all, I think we have, to take, we have to take seriously the point that most, in a way, the most famous point that Marx makes, which is although philosophies have provided all these, you know, hitherto have interpreted the world in various ways, the point is to change it. The, the, the absolutely primary move is, do we get this point or not? I've talked about this in different contexts elsewhere, so I won't go into it um, now. Um, the danger always of, of a certain kind of materialism or idealism is that it, it, it essentially absolves itself into a form of interpreting the world. And that, I think, always runs the risk of missing the point. That, the danger is as great, I think, for certain kinds of Marxism as it is for certain kinds of vapid idealism um, so uh, for me, for example, we have more to learn from a voluntarist uh, like Che Guevara who has a heavy emphasis on ideals and ideas and uh, including quite, in, in some ways, quite um, compromised humanist ideals like dignity, we talked about this yesterday, um, than we have from a sort of hard-nosed historical materials like Plekhanov, for example. So these would be the, for me, the primary distinction is can we think of a philosophical and political perspective as transformative, practical, revolutionary, one that tries actively to get the point that Marx is urging us to get? Uh, and the question of materialist or idealist is secondary. Um, so just to remind, uh, r- remind you all, a point everyone would remember, I'm sure, but that in the context of the French Revolution, in the context of that revolutionary sequence, 
it was the German idealist philosophers who put that question on the map in a way that had significant consequences. And it was someone like Fichte, I think, who in, the, in a way in the most acutely contested um, moment of the French Revolution in 1793 publishes his considerations on the French Revolution in ways that affirm its practical urgency against the idea that human action is essentially subordinate to the causality of time and space. In other words, that, that human beings are not capable of genuinely free self-determination. So in that sense, I think the intervention that Fichte made in that context certainly can be embraced as part of, a, of a, 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 the primacy of practice, if you like. For the same reason, though, Marx's critique of what had become a sterile idealism that he had diagnosed in Hegel's later philosophy, I think was absolutely essential for the revival of a practice-oriented philosophy in the 1840s. Um, so maybe we can go... Uh, leave some of the rest of this uh, behind. The danger, though, uh, so there seems to me the danger on, is, is, is symmetrical in a way. Of course, if you want to insist on the primacy of practice or getting the point, the point is to change the world. If you have a notion, an idealist notion that uh, change or thought proceeds outside the world or independently of the world or out of the world or in your head only, then of course uh, you're missing the point. But likewise, if you insist uh, that, um, as Marx sometimes does, that the world changes itself, that there, are, that there are iron laws written into the history of uh, social relations that mean, as he says, for example, as they say in the, in the manifesto, that the victory of the bourgeoisie, and the, sorry, the defeat of the uh, bourgeoisie, the victory of the proletariat is, uh, is inevitable, or as he'll say in the preface to volume one of Capital, that there are iron laws working with inexorable necessity to lead to certain outcomes. And I, and I wouldn't want to emphasize that. I think that's a secondary emphasis in Marx. But there is that quality, I think, in Marx. Uh, that is just as problematic, I think. It's important, and this is, in a way, the great contribution of the voluntarist readers of Marx, uh, of whom I would include at least partly uh, Lenin, Mao, Che, as well as people like Lufkach and Gramsci, was to reappropriate, I think, the primacy of practice in a philosophy that, during the Second International Era, had lost its, uh, its political edge. Okay, and I would say just the one last thing. I think it's although it's trivial, and I don't mean to push this too much because it um, it's not grounded in anything significant. It's important to remember, I think, that these terms, materialism and idealism, they are, as Knox was saying yesterday, they're bound up with each other, and that uh, we refer to materialism and not materism, for example. That the issue is uh, at stake already here is the notion of a material, which implies already some sort of relation to a work, an intervention that can transform it, that can manipulate it that I think runs, in fact, all the way down, that can be brought into a process of production, for example. And likewise, it's not a matter of an ideaism, or in the, in the sense of an idea that, that is merely kind of virtual or, or something that has no purchase on a reality. An ideal already is something that I think, although you'd have to appropriate the term, can be thought of as something that has some kind of purchase. An ideal of justice or emancipation or popular empowerment or something like that is something that, as an ideal can have some sort of relation uh, to a practical process of transformation. Of course, it can also be abstracted from it. And idealism is certainly not something that I'd want to defend as such. For me, the primacy, uh, the, the question is how to integrate these two notions. And, um, and for me, the, the, the most uh, effective way to think this is through the, the voluntarist tradition, precisely insofar as the willing is a practical process that is grounded in a world that it is trying to change. And... Uh, but also one that maintains and mobilizes ideals, uh, which in, inform, to some extent at least, the work of that self-determination. Okay, well, we can maybe come back to some of these more general points later. So having said that, I'm, I'm now going to uh, um, develop this notion of, um, of voluntarism 
And I have to start very briefly by, remind, by just referring to some of its basic features. And again, these are listed in more detail at the, at the end of this publication here, so I, I'll, I'll just mention them now. At least there, are sort of, there I think I mentioned a few more, but there are six minimally important notions of what I mean by something like a, a political will or a will, a will of the people. Here I'm, I'm talking about a particular kind of political will, which is um, a democratic and inclusive one. There are other kinds of political wills, of course, reactionary, exclusive, um, uh, and uh, the, the kind of political will I'm, in, I'm interested in is the one that comes out of the Jacobin or Rousseauist tradition of a general, inclusive, uh, democratic, popular will, a will of the people, precisely. Uh, so this notion, I think, has at least six minimal characteristics. One is that, of course, it's a matter of will. So it involves volition rather than compulsion or something like a reflex. It's a matter of voluntary, free self-determination. Uh, Rousseau puts it, anticipating in a way the crux of Kant's whole philosophy, he says, without will there is no freedom, no self-determination, no moral causality. And in a way you could say that Kant's philosophy, without wanting to belittle it, is a kind of footnote to this insight. Um, and maybe at one point, you know, in enthusiasm with which Kant reads Emile and immediately starts reading it again, maybe Kant would have admitted uh, some of this. For me, Kant uh, is... His significance is, concerns precisely this, the primacy of practical reason, where the transcendental philosophy, the, the first critique, essentially has the value of preparing the ground for this fundamental move. Um, transcendental philosophy has, if it has a value, it has the value of, of preparing the ground for that, at the price, of course, of doing it in, a, in a, a merely idealist way. So that's the first thing, it's voluntary. Second, uh, as voluntary, it involves then uh, deliberation, reason, rationality, criti you know, critical reason, it's self-critical. A voluntary action will not be, you know, it won't be a matter of reflex or instinct or compulsion, nor will it be one based on mere prejudice, but it will involve active deliberation, the work of constant self-critical evaluation. This, I think, is equally essential. Third, as a will of the people or as a democratic will, it will be inclusive and collective. It will be the will of the people as such and not, as Rousseau and Jacobins endlessly insist the group, the will of a particular group within the people, a faction, a class, an interest, a class in the sense of a, an exclusive class. So if we can talk about, a, you know, extending this a little bit, a pro, like a proletarian will in the Marxist tradition, it's only insofar as that, that what that class names is the process of the dissolution of class. The proletariat is not a class among other classes. It is the way of, relate, of resolving or, or uh, determining class relations so as to get past its isolation as a particular class. In other words, the class that puts an end to class in that sense. Um, fourth, it's a matter, if there's a, uh, the question of political will, it's a matter of direct participation, empowerment, action, organization, and not a matter of representation or vanguardism. This is something that's, um, I, that's emphasized very much um, by the Jacobins, although perhaps never fully worked out in organizational terms. Saint-Just says, for example, that rejecting entirely the idea that laws are a matter of kind of taste or some sort of um, reflection of a, of, a, of a prejudice or disposition or tradition, uh, he says they're a matter of the active general will, what he calls the material will of the people. It's not the, the will of the people in their assembled uh, 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 being together, if you like, in their assembling as a, as a group, as the people. Its goal... He says the goal of, uh, of this Jacobin practice is to consecrate the active and not the passive interests of the greatest number of people. Again, a Jacobin theme that we have to refuse any notion of citizenship 
that distinguishes active from passive citizens. What matters is the active participation of the people in their own self-determination. And this, I think, again, is carried on in the Marxist tradition in the constant critique of merely vanguardist or blanquist um, or putschist conceptions of revolution. Marx will always criticize someone like Blanqui, for example, for being a kind of alchemist of the revolution, as if you could have a sort of small, exclusive party that would manipulate the strings of power, take power, and then bring the people with them afterwards. I think fundamental of Marxist point is that that's not how revolution works. It works through the empowering the work, the reflection of the people as such in their collective assembly. And I think Lenin, although, of course, um, uh, Lenin has his strategic priorities, I think Lenin uh, also pursues a similar agenda. Um, Fanon will make the same kind of point, so will various other of the militant anti-colonial thinkers. So that's a fourth thing. So it has to be voluntary, it has to be uh, rational and deliberate, it has to be collective and inclusive, it's a matter of direct participation or empowerment. Fifth, it's, uh, it's a matter of something that is uh, disciplined, that can hold itself together, that has some degree of unity, or that can protect itself against division, deflection, dissolution, corruption, and so on. Uh, and this is a point that, again, Rousseau emphasizes, and the Jacobins certainly uh, try to implement. And it's, I think, one of the one things that is most misunderstood. To say that the, a general will holds itself together and has a kind of unity or that it's indivisible, as uh, Rousseau insists, is not to say that it can't accommodate difference or, or the multiplicity of perspectives or opinions, but that it can find a way to, res- to hold those together, to, pre- to prevent, for example, the splitting apart of a nation or a group or a trade union or a political party or something like that. The Bolsheviks are actually a pretty good example of how to hold together very significant differences, at least at a certain stage of their development. Um, in that there were the most you know, vicious, vigorous polemics between Lenin and his various associates, um, as long as people could eventually find a way to work through them and, and, and reunite. A, a big bridge is crossed, I think, at the point when, um, in the mid-1920s, there's a work to, ex, you know, to start purging the party of these differences, which leads to disastrous consequences. And likewise, I think the Jacob, what's one of the striking things about the Jacobin sequence in the French Revolution is, again, its capacity to accommodate very significant differences of opinion and priority, um, while nevertheless insisting on, an, uh, on a kind of tactical or practical primacy of, of unity, of holding together um, some kind of degree of unity. I think anybody who's involved in some kind of collective project would acknowledge that this is one of the things that comes back again and again, is how, how do you, uh, accommodating the fact that the, there are different uh, priorities, different... Um, different um, philosophies, um, how, how do you hold these differences together and maintain some degree of unity without splitting apart in some futile schism or breaking apart as has happened again and again in the history of the left? Um, so that's a, f- a fifth thing. It has to hold itself together against the things that threaten it, either from within, through factionalism, or from without. Um, and the, the name that Rousseau gives and the Jacobins adopt is compromised, but I think nevertheless interesting, uh, uh, which is, of, of course, the cultivation of virtue. Virtue is that which privileges the holding together of the general, putting the general first uh, above and beyond the particular uh, or uh, whatever might oppose the general, say, a counter-revolutionary force. Sixth and final point is to say that uh, to talk about the will of the people is to emphasize also its distinction from mere wish, um, to say that, that will distinguishes itself by its capacity to initiate and sustain a process of genuine objective realization. And this is already explicit in Fichte, it becomes emphatic in Hegel, still more so in Marx, 
Uh, in Hegel, for example, the activity of the will consists precisely in this, the cancelling and overcoming of the contradiction between subjectivity and objectivity, translating from the subjective into the objective. And the whole of the philosophy of right is a kind of long extension of this basic insight. Um, I would want to emphasize the continuity here between Hegel and Marx. Marx deepens, radicalizes this subjective aspect of realization or self-actualization, but without, I think, ever abandoning the fundamental dynamic. So that's what I mean by something like political will. I, I'm, I think it's possible, using that um, perspective, to make sense of a good number of uh, important events from the French Revolution through the Russian Revolution, at least the early stages of the Russian Revolution, to what's happening today in, in at least uh, some parts of Latin America, perhaps particularly Bolivia and Ecuador. Other examples which I'll come back to recently would include um, uh, some of the recent developments in South Africa, particularly the United Democratic Front in South Africa. I hope there'll be time to talk about that a little bit. And to a, a more marginal but very interesting movement that's happening as we speak in, in Durban in eastern South Africa, the movement of the shack dwellers there called Abaklele. Uh, and I'll come back to that in the last uh, mo moments of this um, talk. So, uh, putting it very brutally, I think that um, th this approach allows us to then uh, come up with a, a, I, what I would see as a sort of useful but extremely reductive uh, distinction between approaches or, or um, developments that, that either empower or disempower this will of the people. Um, that there are tendencies or forces or groups or factions or um, powers that struggle to uh, disempower it, contain it, squash it, dissolve it and others that try and uh, consolidate it, strengthen it, intensify it, and so on. And like many of you here, I imagine, certainly like most people, certainly like me, I think that it'd be impossible to deny that a lot of recent history, and maybe the, the overall thrust of modern history, since the French Revolution perhaps, has, uh, has facilitated the forces that oppose the empowerment of the will. I think there's no argument against that. I mean, to such a degree that now the question of even posing for understanding politics in these terms at all is extremely difficult. I mean, uh, believe me, I've run into all kinds of objections uh, when you try and uh, pursue this. And I think it's hardly exaggerating things to say that the thrust of modern history, and in particular the thrust of the last 30 or so, 35 years of history, has been shaped actually by, whether or not it's deliberate, by the effective uh, project to squash uh, this attempt. Be, again, if it's time in the discussion to come back to ways of understanding the financial crisis that we are in the middle of now and in, along these same kinds of lines. But um, we can take our six, the six points I just outlined and reverse them in, in the light of this history. We could say that, uh, going backwards then, starting with number six, rather than enabling something like a will of the people to realize its own projects, a whole series of developments and tendencies have encouraged the opposite, the, the filtering and channeling of such a will through all sorts of intermediaries or mediators, institutions, laws, authorities, experts, multiplication of all sorts of different instances which defer the realization of something like a political will. Fifth, rather than facilitate or, or uh, in, enable forms of disciplined unity or holding together, there's been an emphasis, again, in all kinds of different ways on dispersal, disruption, deunification, pluralism, decentralization, splitting apart in different ways. You see, this uh, argument is already right, written into the central debates in the French Revolution itself between the people who wanted to affirm the centrality of a political power able to make decisions, grounded in Paris, and those who emphasize the, the multiplication of different instances in the regions, in the provinces, in the different classes. Uh, that argument is then taken up by people like Tocqueville and expanded infinitely, I think, in the tradition of liberal theory uh, that follows him. 
someone like Hannah Arendt, uh, for instance. Uh, so that would be a, a, that's a number five. Uh, number four, rather than emphasize participation and direct empowerment, there's been, uh, again, a whole series of developments and tendencies that have uh, facilitated or encouraged the exact opposite, a massive pacification of people, an investment, again, in forms of representation or expertise, a, a whole sort of the development of a managerial approach to politics, which has, again, made it very difficult for something like direct uh, popular power to even be thought. Uh, third, against the emphasis on collect, the collective whole, you know, the, the coming together or the assembling of people, there's been an emphasis again on, on a sort of dispersal or privatization of the will, the backlash against Rousseau in particular, uh, who's uh, again often associated with the development of forms of totalitarian centralization, uh, that tradition that runs from Tocqueville to Hannah Arendt, Azari Berlin, and so on. Second, rather than emphasize the deliberate, rational, self-critical dimension of politics, we've had any number of variations on the dreary theme of that there is no alternative, that um, capitalism is the only game in town, people themselves are incapable of something like will, it's instead a matter of choosing between different sorts of political management that would be consistent with the kind of mixture of contempt and fear of the people that has characterized reflection, for example, on the theme of the crowd or the mass ever since the French Revolution. One of the virtues of Ernesto Laclau's recent book is that he brings, uh, he brings some, I think, welcome attention to that tradition that runs you know, all through the 19th century of the fear of the people, the idea that the people, at least in its form, its political form of a crowd or a collective grouping, as incapable of any of the characteristics of will, self-determination, uh, uh, the discipline, or, or the, if you like, the mastery of uh, instinct and reflex and so on. And all of this adds up then to a kind of general devoluntarization of politics, I think, um, which is particularly marked, I think, in the, in the liberal uh, conception of politics. The idea that anything like a collective self-determination involves the trampling of individual freedoms, the tyranny of the majority, and so on. Uh, and therefore, politics can aspire to really nothing more than uh, some form of generalized tolerance in which you have the respect of private property and so on, some other narrowly conceived liberal freedoms, conceived mainly in negative terms to avoid precisely something like the constitution of a collective will. Uh, and Hannah Arendt's uh, book on revolution, a truly dismal and reactionary book in my opinion, uh, presents a kind of nice little overview of exactly the logic that is at stake there. Um, the privileging of an American constitution designed to prevent precisely such an outcome. Uh, and uh, a conception of constitutional legitimacy at the furthest distance from anything like a notion of the will of the people, as she puts it, the most dangerous notion uh, in politics. All right, I, th I think we can describe this process, I'm being very general here, but in, in, in terms of two poles, uh, two uh, sort of, uh, which I, again, for the sake of uh, uh, simplification, you could describe as sort of gentle and harsh. There's the, the gentle pole of this work of devoluntarization has happened through the manufacture of a kind of deferential consent um, the sort of bread and circus, updated version of bread and circus approach to political management. And this is, in a way, just a way of redescribing uh, life as we know it. You know, the development of something like a culture industry, the colonization of the media, management of education, the professionalization of uh, thought, the development of rampant forms of consumerism, corporate globalization, etc., etc., all of which serve to develop what Deleuze usefully calls a uh, the society of control, you know, kind of micromanaged um, differential forms of self-regulation, uh, which uh, I think remains extremely useful as a way of describing um, a lot of the way the world works. Um, 
I think it's important to supplement it. He uh, Deleuze develops that that logic, the, the logic of a society of control, in opposition to Foucault, Foucault's disciplinary society. And in doing so, he loses one of the valuable things that Foucault emphasizes, at least in Foucault's early work, which is that the development of a, of a, of a pacifying, devoluntarizing form of power involves, at its early stages, the work of overpowering the will, the active work of devoluntarization, if you like, which you find... Uh, particularly in Foucault in, in lectures that were published only recently and given in the early 1970s, from seven, two years of his lectures at the Collège de France, uh, called The Abnormal and Psychiatric Power, from 72 to 74, where this is a recurrent emphasis. The em- uh, and usefully translated in English as a form of... The, the kind of power he's interested in is a form of overpowering, where what is overpowered is precisely the will that resists it. Um, and he gives the example, um, in the context of the development of psychiatric power, uh, uh, saying that the, the person who's identified as the madman is paradigmatically the person who takes himself to be a king. Right? So who is the, the crazy person is the, precisely that person who thinks they're a king, takes themselves to be a king, including, in, this, in the nice exception to the rule, an actual king, King George of England, King George III, who, who not only takes himself to be a king, but actually is a king, but is nevertheless mad, and whose treatment anticipates the form of... Uh, of let's say, devoluntarization that Foucault describes in the rest of his book, where he says King George was treated by basically uh, adopting a kind of early version of shock therapy. He's isolated, he's uh, removed from the world in which things are familiar, all the symbols that uh, reinforce his, his sovereignty, so all the things that remind him of his kingship are removed, he's stripped, he's put in a straitjacket, he's stuck in an isolated room, his, uh, he's disoriented, and his, in other words, his mind or his will is broken down. This is exactly the phrase that Foucault talks about. His will is overcome and broken so that his mind can be remade, his will can be remade on the model of the doctors who are treating him. Um, and Foucault then makes the small step to say, in the context of the early 19th century, late 18th century, the mad subject is precisely the people. It's the people, of course, who have taken themselves to be sovereign. It's the people who have taken themselves to be king in the context of the French Revolution. And that the development of this psychiatric power has as its fundamental political purpose the treatment of this disease, of a popular will to declare itself to be sovereign. And it will involve, then, the pacification of that will using precisely these techniques. And what Naomi Klein uh, usefully describes in her Shock Doctrine book is, in my opinion, best Redescribed as a kind of extension of this same basic logic. Uh, if you haven't read it, and many of you will have read it, um, this book, Shock Doctrine, which came out in 2007, starts with a, a useful uh, analogy with um, um, the development of shock therapy in the 1950s in Montreal, uh, developed by the psychiatrist Ewan Cameron, a very sinister character, who, who radicalizes the processes that Foucault is just describing in the early 19th century, that to, to to treat uh, certain kinds of madness, you, you isolate a person, you disorient them, you overstimulate, understimulate, you, know, you basically mess with their heads until you get to a point where you can erase their minds more or less and then remake them in a different way, where you can get them to do essentially what you want them to do. You can overcome their capacity to resist. And what Naomi Klein then does is to show how those tactics were then adopted by the CIA and by other um, security forces over the course of the, in the middle of the Cold War, basically, and then deployed at a much bigger scale in Chile in the 1970s, and then radicalized now, more recently, in a whole series of uh, political moves um, from uh, the, re, the, the kind of reappropriation of public infrastructure in New Orleans to the Iraq War to a whole series of other things. Um, 
So that would be, if you like, the gentle pull, the, the, the kind of dis the devoluntarization of the overpowering of the will, but mainly through forms of kind of manufactured deferential consent. When that fails, though, when, this, uh, when the gentle technique of overcoming the will fails, well, what you have then is the most brutal form, I think, of, uh, of coercion, uh, at least as brutal as is required by the situation. Um, so if you take today a place like Gaza, for example, which is a, a pretty recalcitrant place whose will, if you want to call it that, the political will of the people of Gaza has been quite hard to align with the imperatives of the world as it is, what happens to it? Well, no need to spell out the consequences. It's, it's quite usefully described by Daryl Lee in an article published about a year and a half ago now, saying that Gaza, what's happened to Gaza has been its progressive uh, um, transformation from something like um, a prison, an open-air prison, to an animal pen, that what you have now is a kind of quarantine space in which we can't even talk about it as a sort of prison. It's beyond that level of uh, containment. And I think of some other places, I think the history of Haiti, for example, which is, again, a very recalcitrant place whose history is marked by its refusal to go along with, uh, or its, its, its insistence on maintaining its own kind of political will, and it has it is received over the course of the last 200 years a kind of similar treatment. It's, uh, it's been quarantined, essentially, or contained. And you have a, a sort of anticipation of this, of what you do, what do you do with a group of people who simply will not give in and you can find any number of examples in the history of colonialism. But one of the interesting, most interesting ones for me, uh, if you'll allow me a little moment of Canadian uh, self-indulgence, is um, what happened to the Acadians in the middle of the 18th century. Does anybody know the story of the French called Le, Le Grand Dérangement, the disruption or the uh, dispersal of the Acadians in, in Nova Scotia, which uh, has its kind of peak moment in 1755, but it started a little before that. And basically, the French, to summarize the story quickly, these were people who had been in, uh, they were French, originally French settlers who had been, who, who were some of the earliest people to arrive in the so-called New World, who settled then in Nova Scotia. And unlike most settlements, they quite quickly started intermarrying with the local Native American population, the Mi'kmaqs, and formed, and, and became very attached to that place. They, they were, um, uh, they were in a way some of the most grounded or rooted of the, of the colonial um, of the, of the settlers uh, that went to the New World and very quickly also had an allegiance to their own place rather than to, say, France or Britain. So when the British took over Nova Scotia in the early part of the 18th century, the Acadians refused to sign an, an oath of allegiance either to the British or... Um, oh, and, and they refused, in fact, before that to sign an oath of allegiance to the French as well. They insisted on a, a neutrality. They said, we will remain neutral. We don't care about your wars that you're fighting in Ohio and elsewhere between the British and the French. But we will not we will not uh, sign a declaration of loyalty to you. And the British spent about two decades trying to persuade them to do so, and then finally in 1755 they said, well, if you're not prepared to do this, we will simply destroy you as a community. And they took that community, a, a large number of them were killed outright, uh, about half uh, managed to disperse into, uh, into the woods, quite literally, with the Mi'kmaqs, or go into northern Maine, or go into parts of Quebec, and the others were rounded up on British ships and sent to every part of the empire. So... Uh, a bunch of them wound up in Australia. Two or three hundred wound up in Cornwall in England. About a hundred or two hundred were sent to every big American city down the American seaboard. And that several other hundreds were sent to the West Indies. And the idea was to simply explode this community uh, using uh, what, what Cornwallis said at the time, to make it impossible for you ever to re-aggregate yourself. You will never be able to reassemble yourself as a people. And that gesture, although it's a, in a way a trivial one, or I don't know how trivial, but... Um, it's a kind of, um, 
again, sort of particularly a, a sort of graphic illustration of the harsh pull of the devoluntarization. The de- and it reverses all of the six uh, qualities that I mentioned at the beginning. It breaks apart, devoluntarizes, and so on. Okay. Uh, one indication, I think, then, of, of the, the extraordinary success of these strategies is the passivity, the extraordinary passivity of people now in the context of what, again, to refer to Naomi Klein, is the kind of ongoing um, theft of a, a great deal of the public uh, sphere, the biggest heist in history, as she puts it, the transfer of uh, unprecedented levels of resources to a, a private sector that, um, that can make no rightful claim uh, to them. The incapacity of any, any kind of collective determination to resist this ongoing process uh, and a sort of passivity in the face of, an, of a globalization, corporate globalization, that seems to be extremely difficult to resist. Uh, so that is in a way the kind of contemporary challenge we find ourselves in uh, I'll, I'll make a, a point parenthetically to say that the philosophy that we've inherited that has come out of the tradition of continental philosophy in particular does not give us very many useful tools I think for confronting this situation uh, and I won't, I, I think I, I've discussed this elsewhere so I'll just refer to some names but overall I think that the tradition of western philosophy that has become canonical and has generalized itself in the human sciences and humanities more generally, people in the, the tradition coming out of, let's say, the, uh, the, the early voluntarist tradition of Kant and, and, uh, and Hegel, turned very early, in fact, already in a way with those thinkers themselves, against the tradition of the will. You see it, for example, in Schopenhauer. You see it already later in, um, in, in different ways in Nietzsche and then Heidegger and post-Heideggerian philosophy in Adorno and, and, and a whole string of other thinkers. I'll mention one because Martin's here uh, partly as a provocation. Uh, Jacques Derrida now. And I think if, if you're able to uh, dissociate here the logic of deconstruction from the kinds of political prescriptions that deconstruction tends to advocate, I think that's a very valuable move. But it seems to me characteristic of Derrida, though, and maybe it's just his political priorities, um, to emphasize a, a way of thinking change in ways that are extremely suspicious of the, the notion of, vol- of the will, at least as the, in the, that political tradition that I'm uh, talking about. He says, for example, in The Force of Law, he says... Of course, deconstruction is interested in justice, emancipation. He says, quote, it seeks to change things and to intervene in an efficient and responsible, tricky word, uh, though always, of course, very mediated way, not only in the academic profession, but also in what one calls the the cité, the polis, more generally the world. Deconstruction is interested in changing the world, intervening in the world. But how? Well, he says, it's it's not a matter of, quote, changing things in the rather naive sense of calculated, deliberate, strategically controlled intervention. Now I understand this is, of course, perhaps not the business of philosophy as such. What matters, but it's not that he leaves it there. He says instead we should do something else. We should instead, quote, cultivate the maximum intensification of a transformation in progress. Uh, We should pay uh, attention to, quote, contextual, academical, institutional, discursive specificities. We should mistrust analogies and hasty transpositions confused homogenizations, etc. We should be suspicious of all the emphasis on deliberate, strategic generalization and instead insist on the unreliability of any such categories, insist on the primacy of inconsistency precisely, or to, to recognize that what matters is what consists in, quote, not consisting, in eluding consistency and constancy, eluding presence, permanence, substance, essence, existence, as well as any concept of truth which might be associated with them. Now, on that basis, and, I, and again, for me, it's less clear than maybe it is for you, Martin, about where exactly we draw the line here between the philosophical and the strategic, but I think it'd be very difficult, I think, to pursue something like the notion of a, of a, of a voluntarist political project. 
this though, I, I, I would certainly want to, wouldn't want to throw Derrida out um, as someone who is incompatible with any concept of uh, progressive politics. On the contrary, it's trivial in relation to the real enemies of, of voluntarist politics, which I think are a matter of liberalism, primarily the sort of Thermidorian, Tocquevillian style of liberalism, obsessed always with the putative tyranny of the majority, the danger of unanimity among popular opinion, the emphasis on the constant disruptive plurality of uh, opinions and associations, uh, and so on, the dispersal always of political action. All right, so that's the, um, I'm going to move now to the last part of this. Um, that, I think, is where we are. That's the situation that we find ourselves confronted with. Um, the agenda that I'm trying to, that I'm interested in or that I would like to pursue, and this is where I move into the kind of wish list, is to, is to say that, well, despite all of this and all of the discouragement that you could easily derive from it, there are, I think, a number of projects that we could pursue that have been broadly already in many ways pursued in advance as perhaps a matter of remembering or recovering or thinking about or renewing or, or, or radicalizing. Uh, and I'm going to end with this. And I'm going to mention a few things, maybe I think seven different fields that could contribute something to the renewal of something like a dialectical volunteerism. Okay, the first, and a lot of them is just going to be very schematic. I'm aware I've already been talking uh, for too long. We can pick up any of these maybe in the discussion. Uh, the first is to recover the Jacobin tradition uh, or the French revolutionary tradition, particularly from its historians, people like uh, Furet and company who went to a great deal of trouble to, to erase really the radical potential of this tradition and in which Marx himself didn't make much of a contribution. It's in a way no irony that the only book that really deals in detail with Marx and the French Revolution was edited by Furet himself, who assembled usefully all the cases in which Marx reads the French Revolution and shows, I think persuasively, that Marx was very dependent on the anti-Jacobin liberal historians of the first part of the 19th century in his understanding of the French Revolution and its consequences. So I think there's a work to be done there in recovering the Jacobin um, uh, political legacy, which um, is being done in France as we speak and has been for a certain amount of time by people like Florence Gauthier and Sophie Warnick in particular. And I'd encourage you, for those of you who read, much of this stuff hasn't been translated. There's an essay by Gauthier in a book edited by Jim Wolfries, which is one of the only things that she's published in English. And there's, uh, uh, there will be, I hope, some, uh, uh, some of Sophie Warnick's stuff will be published soon in English. I know Verso is considering translating one of her books. So Vanik, uh, I'll, just, I'll just spell it for if you want to follow this up, is W-A-H-N-I-C-H, Sophie Vanik. And she has a very good short book on the terror and a, a way of thinking the terror as a political category. And I, I highly recommend it. Um, that's the first thing. Second uh, is, and, and sorry, parenthetically, they, they all insist, and I think, and, and this is a tradition, I suppose, of C.L.R. James and people who came after him, of seeing the Jacobin political sequence, not in terms of its historicity, but in terms of its actuality. Like, what, what does this conception of politics mean now? How do we think it, take it forward now? Second is to recover the tradition of, of philosophical voluntarism that, let's say, peaks from Rousseau to Hegel. Uh, and in a way, this needs no recovery. This is ultra-canonical work. Of course, everybody knows about the general will. Um, but it's striking how, at least, and this is my non-specialist understanding of these things, how those notions have been sort of embarrassing for people who work on these things and have been pushed to the sidelines. The work on Rousseau that I'm familiar with has broadly been deconstructive or emphasized usually the pitfalls or problems in this notion, attempt to sort of save Rousseau from himself that you find in, in people from, well, you know, in a good many, a wide range of, of readings of Rousseau, um, Jewish Klar, Starbinsky and various others. 
And I think it's important to, to, to insist on the primacy of this notion. This is absolutely central uh, to Rousseau's political legacy, and to, in particular to protect it from those who, who see it as a kind of proto-totalitarian move. Um, likewise, to recover the, the primacy, the, the radicality of Kant's conception of, of, of will, of, of uh, unconditional primacy of uh, practical reason in the form of will, as an act of willing. And here, Heidegger actually is still a useful ally, I think. Heidegger's lectures on the essence of human freedom from the early 1930s are still an, an important resource, I think, in understanding Kant's practical philosophy because they emphasize the primacy of the willing as such. And the fact that uh, Heidegger himself drew such disastrous consequences from, in his own deployment of political will, I think, shouldn't confuse the fundamental issue that what Kant provides is an account of willing, and that is itself useful. Third, and this would perhaps be more controversial, to recover the voluntarist um, potential or trajectory in Marxism itself, would include a revaluation of the Bolshevik le legacy, to some extent of the Maoist legacy, and also to revive some of the questions that South, I think, usefully posed in the context of the 1950s, to say that a Marxism that doesn't have a place for the primacy of self-determination, collective, the, the primacy of a group self-determination or individual, is not adequate. It is not an adequate account of political change. I think that's right. Fourth, we can recover or, re or remember, at least, the the uh, voluntarism of the anti-colonial national liberation moment, the moment of Fanon, the moment of Cabral, the moment of Che Guevara also, uh, also Paolo Freire, and that, and that legacy, which I think has been very heavily compromised by post-colonial theory, by the re-editing of Fanon's work, for example, under the sign of people like Homi Baba. I, I, I won't go back to this. In fact, I made a vow never to go back to the, uh, that topic, um, so I won't uh, compromise it now. But Paolo Freire is someone who, in the context of the work that we do, is someone who I think uh, should be uh, much, you know, should be at least remembered, revived. I know it's done in certain quarters, but not in the ones that I'm so familiar with. I'll give you just a couple of quotes from Paulo Freire before moving on. He says, it's essential to remember that freedom is acquired by conquest, not by gift. That if there is a movement of freedom, it's in the self-emancipation of the people who free themselves from that which oppresses them. And it's that work of freedom or emancipation or the overcoming of oppression that is fundamental, that orients his entire understanding uh, of things, to the point that he says that the, those the, that um, it's only that work that can orient and guide something like an emancipatory sequence. No amount of leniency on behalf of those who oppress, no amount of generosity um, or charity uh, on behalf of oppression, so you know, a more lenient or more kindly political system will ever be enough to uh, push the work of emancipation. He says, you know, the oppressors cannot find them in, them in themselves the power to liberate, either the oppressed or themselves. Only the power that springs from the weakness of the oppressed will be sufficiently strong to free both. Any attempt then to soften the power of the oppressor in deference to the weakness of the oppressed, this comes back to the question of dignity that you were talking about yesterday. Any attempt to soften the power of the oppressor in deference to the weakness of the oppressed almost always manifests itself in the form of false generosity. Indeed, the attempt almost never goes beyond this. In order to have the continued opportunity to express their generosity, the oppressors must perpetuate injustice as well. And that's, a, I think, the single best description of NGO politics, if you like, that the basic logic that underlies the extraordinary growth of NGOs, which are a paradigm instance of the kinds of things that undermine what I'm describing here as a kind of political voluntarism, uh, is underwritten by this very notion they, that, that in order to be able to express our remarkable charitable generosity, we have to perpetuate the very same conditions that make that possible, the injustice that underwrites it. Parenthetically, you see this in an extraordinary degree in a place like Haiti, which has more 
NGOs per capita than anywhere on the planet, and it's, a, I think, a good laboratory for testing the truth of that statement. Uh, Freire goes on, an unjust social order is the permanent fount of this generosity, which is nourished by death, despair, and poverty. And a line that I've quoted several times and will continue to quote, true generosity consists precisely in fighting to destroy the causes which nourish false charity. And that's very much, I think, what Freire is about. Um, the, the presumption is always then that it's the work of self-emancipation of the oppressed that should orient uh, any work of liberation or, or uh, progressive politics. And that it's impossible to do that if you start out from the assumption that the people are in some way the objects of a kind of generosity, a sort of... Um, uh, he says it's impossible for people to start out as objects in order to become subjects later. They begin as subjects, precisely. That involves then trusting, as he puts it, we have to trust in the oppressed, the oppressed and their capacity to reason. Whoever lacks, this is still Freire, whoever lacks this trust will fail to initiate the dialogue, reflection, communication, criticism that is essential to the development of something like a political will. Uh, Fanon, I think, uh, works on exactly the same kinds of lines. There's, there's an important um, section in the end of his chapter on pitfalls of national consciousness where he says, this is in Wretched of the Earth, where he says that, and, uh, in a way it's a banal point, but uh, Fanon says, experience proves that the important thing is not that 300 people form a plan and decide upon carrying it out, like a kind of enlightened vanguard. He says, this is, what I have to, this is what we have to do. Instead, but that the whole, plan, the whole people plan and decide even if it takes them twice or three times as long. You know, it's this essential thing, that of the collective participation of all the people that is fundamental. Uh, and this, uh, and Fanon insists on this, no leader, he says, goes on to say, however valuable he or she might be, can substitute himself for the popular will. What matters is the consolidation, intensification, clarification of this popular will as such. It's that that can guide the work, again, of emancipation. So, fifth, just a couple of last points, and then I'll stop. I think we can find... Uh, in what's going on today in Latin America, as I mentioned already briefly, uh, Bolivia and Ecuador and perhaps in particular, in, in certain places the, the renewal of liberation theology or liberation pedagogy as, a, as an, an attempt to take this legacy seriously and to revive it. And this, I think, is a, is a, a very encouraging and important development. Um, maybe we can come back to that later. Along the same lines, I think it's important to, um, to rethink, recover, uh, uh, reappropriate more controversial um, recent sequences, like the sequence of Lavalas in Haiti, which was, uh, has basically been written out of a contemporary progressive politics, or the United Democratic Front in South Africa, which is certainly part of, um, uh, of the museum, I suppose, of worthy political projects, but is rarely discussed, at least again in my experience. I'm kind of curious actually here, how, how many, when I, if I say something about the UDF in South Africa, how many people are, are very familiar with its history or, you know, say, yeah, yeah, and we know exactly what happened, what it was, when it started, when it finished. Is it a, is it a pretty common point of reference for people here in Zagreb? Or? It certainly wasn't for me until I started reading about it. Um, and there's remarkably little to read about it, in fact. But the UDF um, was, a, was a, a, a loose affiliation of organizations that started in, in the mid-1980s, in 1984, launched in early in 1983, but take shape in 1984, which did a lot of the, the most important work uh, for uh, undermining apartheid. And it, 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 uh, it, in alliance with the ANC, which was, of course, banned at the time. But it was, it was unlike the ANC, this is schematic, but it, it, it's the conclusion of the, of the most important studies of the UDF. Uh, and there's a very useful book by Jeremy Seekings about this, 
says that on balance, the ANC, although it remained in a way the crucial organization all through this period, it had as its model still a kind of broadly Leninist approach to political change, where what mattered was taking power. You, had, you created a military organization, or an organization at least, that could overcome the obstacles in the way of state power, appropriate that state power, and then use that power to change the situation. So it had a kind of broadly military type of, uh, of, of self-conception, as well as, uh, importantly, some military components to its strategy. The UDF, on the other hand, had uh, a different approach um, that's more consistent, some people have read it along these lines, more consistent with a kind of politics that's at a distance from the state. There's an important essay by Michael Neocosmos, which uses Badiou and Lazarus to make sense of the UDF, that I think is quite helpful. And it emphasized just uh, one or two things that I think are very important. One is the immediate rejection of injustice. So the, uh, the, one of the slogans that the UDF uh, took on board was the drive to make the situation ungovernable right away. So through student boycotts or consumer boycotts or rent boycotts, a kind of variation on the um, sort of uh, the legacy of, of, uh, of uh, civil disobedience but at a very massive and fundamental scale to make the situation ungovernable and to make it ungovernable immediately, to refuse to participate in the forms of reformist government that the apartheid regime was offering at the time, like little bits of representation, little bits of improvement, a softening, a kind of more generous form of oppression. Refuse all of that to have nothing to do with to boycott them, to, uh, to not collude in the perpetuation of this injustice. It was the first thing. A second was to unite all the groups that could, be broad, that could broadly share that objective, despite massive differences, strategic differences. So the UDF's fundamental slogan is always, the UDF unites apartheid divides. So find some way of holding together things which otherwise are extremely different from each other and, and where the tension sometimes threatened to destroy the organization, there's a constant theme in the UDF reflections. How do we hold together these otherwise very different groups, black consciousness groups that basically insist on the primacy of, of African self-determination, others that insist on a kind of rainbow coalition of different groups, etc., etc.? And third and final, and last thing I'll emphasize here, the primacy of what they called in the middle of the 1980s, particularly in 1986, the primacy of people power, people's power, where after making a situation ungovernable, people would appropriate the power to govern themselves and to do so right away. So that power was understood not as something that you could take, that you would appropriate out there, but something you, that you would exert. And again, if you look at Jeremy Seeking's book, if you can find this, and there, it's not that hard to find, the chap chapter seven, the central chapter of his book is called People's Power, and it uses, it provides, I think, a very helpful description of how this worked in practice. Self-education, self-management, self-government at all kinds of levels in different parts of South Africa. And the implication that he makes and various others make is that it was that that was absolutely the decisive moment in the, in the, the ending of apartheid and the movement to a new, a new uh, politics in South Africa. And I'll end uh, by mentioning one other example, and I won't, we can talk about it in, in the discussion if you want, but one of the groups that is continuing that legacy um, is uh, this Shack Dwellers movement that I mentioned uh, in Durban in South Africa, which has a very similar mindset to Lavalas if you, um, in, in Haiti. It's in fact striking how many different comparisons there are, and, and the people involved in it are themselves making these analogies precisely. And it, it takes all those features I just mentioned about the UDF, takes them precisely as their organizing principles. And it's a very remarkable organization. I won't say anything about it now because I know we're out of time, but if you want to find out about it, Abak Lely is, uh, that has a website, useful one, and that's A-B-A-H-L-A-L-I. And there's a, the best short overview is, that I'm familiar with is by Richard Pithouse, P-I-T House, P-I-T-H-O-U-S-E. And, if, uh, and, and it's well worth finding out about it, I think. And it, it again, is, uh, for me, a paradigmatic 
uh, illustration of what something like political will in the form of an inclusive um, democratic will, what it's capable of doing here and now. And, and it's had a remarkable and uh, I think very inspiring impact in Durban and it's starting to get more general attention. It's, uh, to end then, I think it's that it's an orientation to things like that and more importantly, of course, to movements like that in our own space. What, how can we take the inspiration of these kinds of examples and use them to orient the political work that we do ourselves in our workplace, in movements to stop the war, and movements to stop this, this biggest heist in history, as Naomi Klein puts it, to, to reappropriate some sense of our own capacity to get a grip on our history, as South said. That, uh, that, that is that, basically, that is at stake in the development of a political voluntary. It's interesting. I mean, you're absolutely right. His, his fundamental orientation was worked out in South Africa, and he was a, and, and embraced very much in the tradition of the UDF, in particular, which was always a bit more ecumenical, if you like, more inclusive, particularly of the Indian tradition and color tradition, as well as the African tradition. And, um, and to mention Gandhi himself, also to me, it was very interesting because he goes for his Indian, actually spiritual, if you wish, but he speaks of Christ. He speaks of the, he was in England. He is uh, Russo, Tolstoy. You know, he he actually. Uh, interprets even our uh, tradition very well, and I think very interestingly. Yeah. I think I think he's an important. I think all, all I would say is that uh, he's an add something important, but I but I would be slightly nervous to. Um, I think it has to be qualified quite quickly with some other supplements. So uh, Balibar has a useful article on Lenin and Gandhi, for example, seeing how they're compatible and how also the one fills gaps in the other, and I think that. Uh, it, it's striking how I think Gandhi, like Martin Luther King or other figures like that, they've been very their their kind of incorporation into a certain mainstream has also served to pacify what is powerful in them. Nonviolence is, you know, it's only one way of describing and translating what is apparently at stake in his fundamental concepts, which are much more, I think, about self determination and the self determination that resists any any coercive imposition from outside. And, and that legacy, I absolutely agree, crucial. Yeah. Uh, 
I had uh, two questions for you. I thought it was fantastic the way you really elaborated this and clarified the stakes and brought together your philosophical positions and your political investments, as usual. But my two questions, first has to do with the example of the Bolsheviks, which you, uh, in this talk, you cited them as a positive example of a group, or at least until 22, which shows this unity of the collective and resists factionalism by being able to incorporate uh, difference and dissensus within it. But what's interesting is to consider that the Bolsheviks themselves are born in a factional rupture, that it's, their group is constituted precisely by splitting. You know, when you have the Mensheviks in the majority and the Bolsheviks, and so there is this subtractive moment or, you know, establishing a group. And so can we talk about a collectivity like the Bolsheviks in the same way we talk about a collectivity like this group in Canada in the 18th century, where for geographical or ethnic reasons, the group is sort of, it's established almost ex nihilo. I mean, they're not rupturing from an outside. They are that group. And this gets also to the, what is often said about Rousseau, even though his critics who want to give him some credit will say, well, this might work for Geneva, but it's not going to work in a broader context. And so I, I would like to hear more about how you think about that relation, because then, you know, in the globalized world, or whatever you want to call it, like when you don't have these isolated pockets anymore, how is this general will established sort of rupturally? And then the second question has to do with, for, you know, bringing up the example of Fure uh, and his interpretation of the French Revolution, and, and clearly you have a strong political distaste for some of the things he tries to advance politically, and, and I'm sympathetic to that, but, you know, as you said yourself, he... He has this. He, he edited this Marxist volume. He himself started as a Marxist with communist investments, in his interpretation. And in your valorization of Jacobin tradition, is there not? I'm going to state this a little more strongly, just to push the point. Uh, a refusal to engage with the terms of Pierre's argument, which is precisely that in the Jacobin terror, it's the primacy of concepts, it's the abandonment of practice, and what he calls ideology, ideology skidding out of control. That's actually his phrase. And it's a sort of post-Althusserian notion of ideology and concepts that result in a, the, the Jacobin failure is an imminent failure of Jacobinism and not the result of a Thermidorian reaction. And he's saying that it is precisely an abandonment and abstraction from the actual people that allows the terror to skid out of control, where ideology becomes dominant over the actual practical inclusion. And so despite the political distaste or disagreement, I mean, in your attempt to revalorize the Jacobins or Mao or Bolshevik or the Bolshevik example, I mean, how do you handle some of these arguments about their, their imminent failure? Like, it's not just a, a question of the reaction that causes the downfall, but some of the imminent elements in their disintegration. Or yeah. Okay. Great, great questions. Um, I'll take the second one first. Uh, I mean, Fioré doesn't is not the only person to make that argument. So Albert Soboul makes that argument already. I mean, it's in fact on the left the idea that Robespierre at least after, say, February 94, so in the last six months or so of the, of the Jacobin Republic, that they abandon, that he abandons his power base uh, among the people, that, that, that it becomes increasingly you know, sectarian and withdrawn and therefore undermines itself. Uh, that, I think, is an argument that has been often made. And so Fure doesn't have an originality on that score, I think. C.L.R. James makes the same point exactly about Toussaint Louverture in Haiti, that, yes, he was a Jacobin leader, but he undermined his own case by basically ceasing to cultivate and um, uh, maintain some kind of living connection with his base, basically. Um, so yeah, in, in that sense, um, I mean, Ben Said makes that argument, too, about, about Robespierre. Um, so the valorization of Jacobin is not to say that someone that they didn't make tactical mistakes in that period. The, my problem with, with Fure is 
I think there's, well, I have a lot of problems, but two, one is that he says that the logic of the terror was, if I remember this right, was already built into the concept, uh, already built into 1789, the notion of a kind of general will. It's that, it's this idea that, the, that there can be an assembled will of the people which will then not be able to tolerate pluralism. Like he takes that standard liberal argument about Rousseau, about the French Revolution, and reads it into the very dynamic of the French Revolution so that the French Revolution is fundamentally about the terror, about the incompatibility of pluralism, at least as I haven't read this stuff for a while. But, um, so that, I think, is a mistake. I, um, I think, on the contrary, they... Um, I mean, I think it's an argument about the, yeah, the imminent constitution of the idea and this tendency to get out of control once it's established. And, in the, in the, the right. Well, see, I would dispute that. I, I think that, on the contrary, what's remarkable about, about the Jacobin terror, even in some of its worst moments, apart from possibly the last month, so after the, if you know this history, after the Prairial laws, 22 Prairial laws are passed, then you have possibly a moment of a kind of getting out of control. Although, and it's striking, in fact, that Robespierre doesn't even seem to be interested. There's a kind of moment of withdrawal, almost, in which other people are kind of competing. And in fact, it's the Thermidorian ultra-terrorists people like Talian, Fouché, and others, who in fact manipulate that opportunity for their own purposes. And they are the people who are much more brutal and vicious than Robespierre himself. Robespierre was not an ultra-terrorist, and he opposed, for example, some of the most extreme measures that were taken in the Vendée and in Bordeaux and, and Marseille and other places, Lyon in particular. Um, so in fact, there's the emphasis always on moderation. In fact. They have to be, yes, we have to be implacable in our opposition to the enemies of the revolution, but that involves... Uh, at least in the, you know, the essential um, moments of the, of the terror, it involves restraint, it involves um, channeling popular anger, it involves avoiding something like vigilante violence, which otherwise could have got out of control. So the, this is Van, so Vanek's point, and I think it's very persuasive, is that the terror served, in fact, to limit violence rather than to foster violence. That if you hadn't had the terror, which was essentially the legalization and the appropriation of centralized control over over something that would otherwise spill into popular revenge and which uses the logic and dynamic of revenge, you would have had open civil war at a scale that would have dwarfed the actual civil war. So you've got to remember the terror, if you add all the numbers of people that were killed, uh, you know, 2,000 or so in Paris, 2,500 two I think in Paris, you know, by, condemned by the Revolutionary Tribunal, and then in the various operations that squash um, counter-revolutionaries, you know, in often very bloodthirsty ways, you have another 16,000 or something like that which is a lot of death, right? But proportionally, you have the same figures in the American Revolution, which is often thought of as you know, much more peaceful. And if you then consider what happened when Napoleon got his hands on things, I mean, this is in the level of bloodshed. It's not, or if you look at what happened to the Commune, for example, you know, where the level of violence is, again, much more severe. What's threatening, I think what, what's threatening about the terror is not the level, the actual level of things getting out of control, the level of violence, but the fact that it happened in the name of something more like popular justice, and that it was actually the people who, the members of the privileged elite who were quite systematically and deliberately, um, at, you know, uh, whose power base was basically just broken, and, 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 and the capacity to follow through on that, through something like a disciplined state-mediated state process, that is, I think, the thing that makes it exceptional. And that, I think, is the thing that Pure is uh, worried about. So the, the, the other thing I would, don't, so much like about Pure's argument, which is a, a version of Tocqueville's argument, is that, the, is that the revolutionaries themselves didn't really know what was going on. That, that to really think the French Revolution is to think the long history of the consolidation of the state. And that essentially the French Revolution was the process whereby someone like Napoleon could get his hands on power. And that I think is... I don't think Pure would say that as strongly as Tocqueville. Maybe not, but I think it's there. I, I mean, again, I haven't read this for a while. Um, and, and it's... it's 
you see that around in people who are coming out of his tradition, certainly, yeah. who are, are someone like David Andrews. Aaron and Oh, sorry, but I didn't finish the question about Bolsheviks, so very quickly, because I know, uh, I, I, um, you said it started with a schism. That's true, a little minor faction, in other words. But uh, so did the Jacobins. So did, in fact, many, many examples. I mean, in fact, the civil rights, almost every popular, something that turned into a collective will mm-hmm. begins this way. And, and here, um, again, it's a point that Martin was making. You can't retrospectively look for the conditions of possibility of the thing before its retrospective emerges. It's the emergence that allows you retrospectively to see that this is how something like a popular movement developed. So it, it, the Bolshevik... I, I would see the Bolshevik uh, movement as a, as a political sequence in terms of its collectivization of a political will in 1917 when it most emphatically was a broad social movement concentrated certainly in the working class in the two big cities of Russia but it was not just a fact a little, a little clique I mean th- th- this idea that the Bolshevik revolution was done by a few professional vanguard putschists you know, who were re- you know, had copies of Lenin's What Is To Be Done in their hands and that, and that it had no fundamental popular support. This is a fantasy imposed by American right-wing historians that were keen to see it that way. And again, who wanted to see Stalin written into 1917. The more recently, even mainstream hist- you know, histories, like the Oxford Short History of the, French Revolution, of the Russian Revolution, emphasize that on the contrary, it was a very much a mass collective movement and where the emphasis on, on self-determination, on power to the people, on these kinds of cliched but important slogans was absolutely what was at stake. And the Bolsheviks facilitated that. People went to the Bolsheviks because they did not compromise with Kerensky and company. They did not compromise with that. They insisted on the self-determination of the people as such, and it was that that gave the Bolshevik sequence its power. Likewise, I think that's why people, why the Jacobins emerged, um, not just as a faction, but as the, as the group that could best present itself as the, the delegates of something like a general will. Likewise, I think you could say that around the, what happened in, in in the movements against apartheid, where you have a huge soup of different organizations and groups, uh, and the ANC and the UDF are the two that can best present themselves after the fact as those that have that can bring some edge to that work of determination. Um, I think you may have started to address this a little bit in your, your last uh, response, and but I'll try to ask maybe a more abstract uh, question. Which
it's free or not. Right. Um, so I guess this is a version of the same question. How do you avoid uh, formalism while maintaining a, a sort of a genuinely political, politically valuable account of what people do when they engage in the world? Yeah. Well, that, so that's a way of trying to, can we have some account that, that finds a middle ground between Kant and Hegel, basically. And I think that Rousseau, on the one hand, and Marx, on the other, does to give us some of the resources we need. And it's, but I, I, I haven't done that work yet. It's more like a kind of, this is a project. I think, I think it, it, can, it can be done, basically, by abandoning the, the ahistorical, idealist um, formalism of Kant and by qualifying the kind of materializing dimension of Hegel. And the problem with Hegel is that, in a way, uh, the material determination of the will becomes too uh, determinant. It becomes such that it, it, the, the capacity of freedom to self-determine gets lost in the sort of opacity of institutions and the weight of history, in a way. Um, so I think, you, I think you need both. I think Rousseau is probably, in, in a way, anticipates like, a way out, but, um, um, but I, I, don't, I don't really have a, like a fuller answer than that. In terms of ideology, I think... Um, once you have a concept of ideology like Althusser does, where it's the air we breathe, basically, where um, any, any theory of merely voluntary action would, would, be, would be a facet of ideology, where you would recognize, or when you, insofar as you can recognize your self-determination and the determination of, you know, we resolve to do such and such a thing, is it would be a measure constantly of its ideological status. I think uh, that concept has lost all purchase, that we then need a critique about that kind of conception of ideology, and that it's essential to say that um, however compromised and uh, you know, however um, overdetermined that the the attempt to appropriate something like uh, freedom or the ownership of uh, of a political will is that we that it nevertheless has a transformative force and that even in that even in that tradition of that, that French epistemological tradition you can find that distinction at work in someone like Kongian, for example, who never abandons this, like, the idea that voluntary self determination is indeed valuable and, and can't be simply mortgaged away to an account of ideology. I think the insistence that you have there in Althusser really just basically very, very heavily undercuts, if not destroys, its political purchase. And that the people who have moved past Althusser and who came through Althusser all dropped it very quickly when it, when it became significant. When, when, you know, when it was a matter of, uh, of reactivating a, something more like a direct political engagement uh, in the late 60s, early 70s. Um, in other, in other words, there's like a period between the mobilization against the Algerian war in which something like a Sartrean analysis was, I think, crucial and fundamental. And, uh, and then, in a way, in the first part of the 1960s at least, there's a, there's a kind of retreat from that conception of politics. And then it needs to be reinvented by leaving behind Althusser. So for all Althusser's valuable contribution to the, the restoration of the need for something like a scientific analysis of how oppression works or how capitalism works... If, if it's done at the price of abandoning the, the power of um, people to determine their own future, then, it, then we should drop it, or at least move beyond it, or qualify it. valid 
strategic motivation is like this doesn't give us the emphasis on determination or commitment and engagement that we need. Mm -hmm. uh, so that would be like sort of a constructive example of how the strategic seems to be more important for you than the philosophical. Now, and similarly, uh, it seems to me that like in approaching this question of the will of the people and the general will, that for a moment practicing specific objections to inconsistencies in it, or then how you would handle them, that like it seems to me that even if one could unearth certain inconsistencies in it, or problems with the theoretical formulation of it, that you would still want to insist that like, well that might be the case in one register, but here are a number of strategic reasons why we need to mobilize this despite certain philosophical problems with it. Um, and to clarify how that works, methodologically and philosophically, I think it's important. And I was thinking about it in relation to both uh, Noxus and Aaron's questions, because it seemed to me um, Noxus' example about the Bolsheviks, regardless of the historical specificity of that, lurking in this question, if I understood incorrectly, is that if you were defining virtue in terms of that, like you would prioritize the general rather than the particular. But when we think about that theoretically, you can certainly think about a general situation where like actually it's the prioritization of a particular or a particular group that actually leads to the constitution of a general will that you would want to support in another instance, for example. That like it is there are all sorts of ways in which one can just sort of theoretically problematize the distinction between the general and the practical that your definition of virtue Similarly, like Aaron was asking you for a criterion, how you distinguish between the ideological and the non-ideological will of the people. So e and even if you say like we don't want ideology all the way down, it still remains that you need a criterion by which you distinguish the two. Mm -hmm. And more and more, and when I listen to you, I see how you develop more and more resources to answer those questions. But beyond that, it seems to me that even if you couldn't answer fully those questions, and even if you would concede that there was a philosophical problem, you would not relinquish your project. You would still say, for strategic reasons, we need to push self-determination, we need to push the general will. And like, I find that very engaging and very fascinating, but I think like, it requires some sort of philosophical and methodological justification. Okay. All right, that's, that's very interesting. I am, um, well, what the criterion is, and maybe this didn't answer Aaron's question properly, is, a pr is the practical work of self-determination. I mean, there I, I think Kant is still helpful. I think, um, I, again, it's not just the formalism, right? It's, but it's, I, would li I like Heidegger's reading. It's the, wi it's the willing of something as such, freely and so on, uh, free, therefore, from any you know, heteronymous uh, uh, motivation that, that, that determines its own outcomes. The general, is, in that sense, is not that the general is not a, there in advance. It's, it's something that comes to be through the process of, of collectively willing. So in the case of Rousseau, for example, what you start with, and he has different accounts of what you start with, but what you start with is division... Uh, isolation, disaster, uh, particularly in the discourse in political economy, what you start with is a situation in which basically uh, life can't go on anymore without c catastrophe. It's like civil war. It's not that different from um, you know, the tradition that comes out of Hobbes about how to, we have, something has to give. And the general is, is, the, is the result. Like here, I, I think Badiou is right about this. That the, the general, the generic, emerges through the process of basically... Uh, subtracting the the, uh, the process of collectively holding together a willing from all the different things that might divide it. So even though, of course, a, a, 
a, a project can start out valorizing or privileging a particular group, let's say the enslaved or the oppressed or whatever, whatever, any, whatever situation those are, we're talking about, those will take on different qualities. But there's still a distinction, a fundamental distinction between the valorization of that group as a group, as a, you know, uh, from the, the creation of something that's truly general and generic. And there I would agree with Badiou or South or, or Martin Luther King or Long or Gandhi, that what matters is that universal edge. Of, it's a universal process of emancipation and not a kind of cultural politics or the valor, like identity politics of a particular hitherto oppressed group. I think that's an important distinction. As far as the, uh, the que- as far as like how do you relate this to bigger philosophical or more general philosophical questions? Well, I mean, it's Deleuze himself who says, "Well, what is philosophy? Philosophy is the rigorous pursuit of a question, the elaboration of all its of, of all, everything that's at stake in a question." And it, it's quite hard to give a more basic definition of philosophy than that, because you can have this, your question the question of being, or the question of thinking, or the question of reason, or but. It, it, without turning around in circles, you're still asking a question in a way, and you know. So, uh, in that sense, Deleuze is not that different from Heidegger or others who insist on the prime, or South for that matter, who again insists on the primacy of a question. The first part of being nothing is precisely about that. And so, for me, you, it's not like uh, I, I, if you're interested in the question of how, of basically, getting Marx's point. What is it? The point is to change it. That's the question. The question is how do we change it, or how do we get that point? And that is the question that I would assert, strategically and philosophically, as the question that is that matters the most. And that, you know, who, someone already used this pun. I can't remember who did yesterday. Who did? Anyway, uh, that 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 is what is that is what is materialist about about an approach to philosophy that wants to change the world rather than simply pursue clarity and distinction or coherence for its own sake. And so I don't think that there's a clear distinction here between strategic and the philosophical because. Because it's a matter of asserting the value of a question. I, I think, you know, if you remember at the end of the Deleuze book, it's not, I, I, you know, I respect and admire Deleuze's work profoundly as a way of pursuing his question. I just don't think it's the question, it's not the question that I think those of us who want to change the world should preoccupy ourselves with. Exactly. It's a distraction. It's, it's, it's like, yeah, yeah, it doesn't, doesn't make answer. It just makes me want to focus on all our questions. Namely that, so if that is the question one should, that you have chosen, What I was trying to ask is that that doesn't entail then that and you, you can you can say that that's both a philosophical and a strategic answer. I mean, and you can do that in both. But that that is it entails that there's an asymmetry in actual situation where, like, you if you hypothetically at least encounter a situation where there is a philosophical inconsistency, that it follows from the question you have chosen that one nevertheless pushes through and go for strategic reasons. So that there's a sort of asymmetry in the priorities, even if the initial commitment to the question is both philosophical and strategic, that the nature of the question requires an asymmetry between strategic and the philosophical. It's, I, I guess you... In, I think you can't escape the basic, some gesture of confidence in well, how am I going to resolve in problems with a question, or how am I going to answer a question. You have to, once you accept that philosophy is about answering questions, you need to have some kind of confidence that you can answer it or else it's, the whole thing is sterile. So the question that I, for me would be, I guess, can I, uh, what is the best way of, uh, of, of tackling that, or what is the best vehicle for confidence? And so I guess what I'm saying is I have confidence in the process of willing or self-determining to work its way through the problems, because it, it's a process precisely, and it's one of uh, the, the kind of voluntary self-determination, the movement from the involuntary to the voluntary, or the movement from a, an isolated group to a collective or to an, a general group, are processes that will work through these things. And it's, that's why you have these 
grandiose but magnificent insistences by Diderot, but also, more importantly, by Rousseau, and then, uh, and then later even Trotsky, saying that the collective cannot err. Like the group, if it is able to will its, to will its way through, it will make temporary mistakes or aberrations, it will be deceived, it will go astray, but ultimately it will not, it will, it is incapable of error, in fact, Rousseau says, because if it's able to pursue itself, in other words, if he has confidence in the process of willing to resolve these things. Now, of course, it can be interrupted. If you interrupt it or dissolve it or break it, then, you know, that's the end of that sequence. So I guess my question would be, well, what is the alternative? The alternative is to say that we can have some confidence in the capacity of reason to in a more abstract way, or, or language, or, or, or perhaps poetry, or some other resources that we might have for answering questions, or at least alluding to questions, or evoking questions. Um, and I don't think any of those things are particularly compelling alternatives. Yeah, or, I th or is it, or, or is it, or, uh, 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 in a sense, uh, uh, maybe a try uh, to not have voluntary politics anymore, mm -hmm. but to have uh, a politics of self-determination that wouldn't be voluntary? Yeah, that's a great question, and I, I overall, I think, uh, yeah, I think that's probably basically what it is. It's, it's, a, it's. I see it at least as a, and South too for that matter, because neither of them have a concept of will as such, not really developed at least. Um, although, parenthetically, there are notes that, Dele, that uh, Badiou prepared for a, a course on the will that are quite worth, that are well worth reading. You can find them online. Uh, it's a course he gave in 2003 on La Volonté, and, um, and they're well worth reading. It's just an outline, though. It's, it's frustratingly incomplete, but uh, where he affirms a kind of volonté impure, as he puts it, an impure uh, will. And I think he's quite... I mean, and there's a very sympathetic, as you probably remember, the chapter on meditation on Rousseau and being in an event, and I, I think that, um, I guess my, my, my question to him would be, well, in, in leaving behind some of these things, and leaving behind the primacy of self-determination or will, uh, that, that allows him to do a certain number of things. It allows him to avoid um, some of the impasses of a kind of Sartrean conception of the subject after it's been hammered by the 1960s. It allows him to avoid any reference to psychology uh, and to have a theory of the subject that's purely formal, that then has to be supplemented by a body in a sort of complicated and confusing and maybe not very satisfactory way. And it, but it creates all these problems too. If you have no reference to a psychology, in the, I don't mean an empirical psychology, but a psychology that can accommodate a process like willing, then that work of self-determination has to be done some other way. And how is it done exactly in Badiou? It's done by the de basically something very similar, the determination to follow the consequences of a, of a principle or an axiom. And by, not, by refusing to describe that in terms that would allow you to bridge the gap between basically ordinary subjective action, like the domain of individuals, and the exceptional status that he ascribes to a subject, you have this gap, you have this hiatus, where we cannot then really understand that process except provide a sort of formal description of it. And, and that, I think, is a serious weakness. It creates, a, it creates a, you know, a sharp division between the domain of, let's say, relatively trivial or insignificant and, and incomplete, politically inconsequential forms of, let's say, willing, which happen all the time uh, in every person's life, of course, 
and the capacity to cross a threshold where those things come together or intensified or strengthened, consolidated, perhaps originally, you know, initially just by a tiny group of people in ways that can become massively important and that can be done simply by sheer will, right? By the sheer determination to do so in a context, of course, where you need to have a strategic understanding of how that context works, but where you don't need an event, I mean, where, where if you like, where you can force this through across the threshold without having to think about that in terms of the dynamic of an event. So I find it striking that Although he's, uh, you know, and this is in the context of very broad levels of agreement with Badiou. I mean, I do think he's, he's the person who's put this kind of work back on the agenda after South in a way that's very important, I think. But that, that you would have as your, one of your key terms something like fidelity rather than commitment. Like, is this, or, you know, already they're very close, but commitment in the Sarchian sense is all about a project. It's all about moving forward. It's all about... Um, about an orientation into a future, fidelity, at least in its dynamic and logic, takes you back. And why is this helpful? And one of the reasons why I think Badiou did that is that his philosophies worked out in a period of profound reaction, where there was no clear prospect of a project in the future, if you like, where what was clear and what was divisive was the reference back to Maoism in particular, but also to 68 and a few other things, where again and again what happened is people betrayed that fidelity, right? He's surrounded by, in a way, it's personal history, it's a history of a series of renegade betrayals. And Badi's philosophy takes shape in part, at least, as a refusal to do that. I will not betray this. I will be faithful to this, etc. And that, I do think it's valuable, and it kept open a certain way of thinking and a space for thinking, but that, that it's not, still for me, it's not as, as powerful or as important as a, as a thinking forward, if you like, moving forward, that you have in the concept of determination, self-determination. One last question for you, John, I think. This is very interesting to hear, especially following back to the philosophy article, but I've somehow lost track of how to situate this theory with respect to the terms materialism and realism. Information uh, for the round table. Could I, you maybe I was afraid you were going to ask that, yeah. Uh. <laughs> well, um, I don't know is the truth, because it's not, uh, it's a slightly secondary thing, but I, I think that for me, that, that you have to think both together. So you need, a, a, a willing is, a, for me, paradigmatically, a pra, like a, a practice, it's a question of practice. And that the materialism that I would embrace would be, and here would be one of the maybe few, rather few points where I would agree with someone like Isabel Stengers, who in a recent article on radical philosophy insists on the materialism of practices, refusing a kind of materialism of physicalist reduction, as she puts it. So she, and she argues, in fact, with Dennett um, and this distinction between cranes and skyhooks and says, actually, certain kinds of practices are not helpfully described by that distinction. There are forms, if you like, of skyhook that can be embraced in the dynamic of a practice. And maybe then redescribe as something that's not actually a skyhook at all. Um, maybe not. Right. Um, so for me, that the, the, it's the question of well, the world. You know, it's, it's a the practice. Getting the point is about changing about the world determination to change the world. It's happen, something that happens in the world. It's the practice is something that is emphatically of this world. In that sense, is a material, or it's 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 in, in, embraced in the question of the you know the practical work of that transformation. On the other hand, though. The idea that you could have, and that you have, even in the most hard-nosed Marxism, a clear distinction between that work and something that can still be described in a very even general sense as idealistic, in other words, as, in, as oriented by ideals that people are prepared to die for and work for and so on, I think that's not helpful. I have no problem with reference back to uh, naive ideals about, let's say, justice and emancipation and empowerment and so on. I think we, we gain nothing by pouring scorn on that. And that um, so I would, I would say that... Uh, um, it's, it's precisely about holding those two things together and that voluntarism is a way of, in other words, of integrating a materialist and an idealist philosophy without sacrificing one or the other. I don't see what's 
what we gain by it. Like I said, the question is, a, is more a polemical, strategic one in a context like that of the 1840s where, where the critical resources that Marx had at his disposal were largely dominated by Hegel and dominated by, particularly by the late Hegel, in which spirit basically determines its own social context and not the reverse, Marx corrects that. But if you go too far in that correction and then you have unqualified assertion that it's social being that determines consciousness, as he says in the preface to the critique of political economy, that's, I think that has to be supplemented in turn. So you, that, you go flip-flopping backwards, you know, that Gramsci and Lukács will, you know, will, I think, correct that, uh, the balance back in a certain direction. And I think if right now, and this is how you, you, know, you introduce the event and how you inaugural your initial comments in this, Presented, where you have the hegemonic domination of a certain kind of materialism, uh, I, I think it's a, at the very least pro, you know, worth remembering that materialism means something in its relation to idealism and in this polemic, where what is really at issue is the primacy of the practical, or getting the point that Marx wants us to get. It's materialist criterion. Getting it? Well, yeah. I'm happy to say that, yeah.